there was a paper that I've written with uh, the director of AARO uh, at the Pentagon. There is an organization collecting all the data about unidentified aerial phenomena. In that paper, we um, mentioned in the introduction the possibility that uh, you can have a mothership that releases a lot of small probes. And the reason I came across this idea is because Oumuamua shared the same distance of closest approach and the same speed as an interstellar meteor that was discovered seven months before it uh, in March 2017. And uh, it was detected by U the US government uh, and put in the meteor catalog. And together with my student, Amir Siraj, we identified it as moving too fast to be bound to the sun. So we identified it as an interstellar meteor of very high material strength because it burned up in the lower atmosphere of the Earth. This was the second interstellar meteor. We discovered another one from 2014. But what was special about the 2017 one uh, is that uh, it shared the same distance at closest approach to the sun and the same speed at that distance as Oumuamua did. But that led me to suggest a possible scenario. Of course, the purpose of any extraterrestrial technological gadget depends on what the senders wanted to use it for, or it could be just space trash. You know, we when you go to the ocean, you find a lot of uh, plastic trash, and uh, it indicates that there are, there is a technological civilization out there. In fact, the mass of this trash will exceed the mass of fish in the oceans by 2050 if we don't stop throwing trash into the ocean. We will try uh, to go there to the explosion site of that meteor and find the uh, relics from it uh, in order to analyze their composition and figure out whether it was a space wrap. Welcome everyone to Into the Impossible. In this lively live stream episode, the inimitable Avi Loeb defends himself against a paper attacking his proposition that a muamua the mysterious object visiting our solar system in 2017 could have originated from an advanced technological civilization. Could it have been a solar sail-powered spacecraft? A piece of space junk from a distant civilization? An interstellar alien probe? In addition to learning the differences between a meteorite, asteroid, and comet, Professor Loeb points out the flaw in the paper published in Nature and how bias can distort science in general. Stay tuned for this open-minded, clear-thinking dialogue on the topics of UFOs, UAPs, and techno-objects. Keep in touch with Professor Keating by joining his email list at briankeating.com list to receive his Monday Magic newsletter. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you a bit of space dust in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Keep into the impossible in your feed by subscribing. And for some extra credit, jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's Dr. Brian Keating, and subscribe there too, where we just broke the 100,000 subscriber milestone. Please help us make the show better by filling out our listener survey linked to in the show notes. And let us know what you think of the show in the form of a review like this one. T.C. Cook says, such thoughtful, challenging, and interesting conversations. I learn a lot every time I listen. And now, keep an open mind as our frequent guest, Avi Loeb, takes us into the impossible and the real possibility of detecting alien artifacts. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. I'm very happy to be speaking today with my, my good friend, Avi Loeb. 
who's a professor, a renowned scientist, uh, the director of the Galileo Project, the founder of the Galileo Project, really the driving force, I would say, behind so much interest nowadays in the phenomena of of extraterrestrial uh, entities, whether they be craft or perhaps searching for hard data, not just speculation, not just you know cell phone camera reports, not just professional skeptics. This is what people want. They want hard data. They want access to the best. And for better or for worse, Avi, Harvard is the gold standard, right? I mean, come on. Har Harvard is taken as the gold standard. And you were the chair of the department for over a decade. You've been made renowned contributions to areas of theoretical physics, of cosmology, of astronomy, and now pivoting in later stage of your career to things that are exploding in interest among the general public. Who pay our tax, our salary? We, I pay my own taxes. I almost slipped and said the public pays on it. Anyway, I'm not feeling good today. I've got it cold, but I wouldn't miss this conversation for the world. We're talking with Avi Loeb and uh, Avi, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to join you. And uh, I should say that when I uh, do my work as a scientist, uh, the fact that I um, belong to Harvard is irrelevant as much as it is for a soccer player playing for Real Madrid. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, when I'm using instruments to figure out what nature is, that's just like using video cameras in the World Cup in soccer. You know, that's what FIFA is doing. It's not relying on the players to tell them whether there was a penalty or not. It's using video cameras and analyzing them. So. Uh, you know, I don't want to use humans as uh, scientific detectors. I don't want to subscribe to social media and listen to how many likes I have. <laughs> well, it's great that you do what you do. Um, and what we're talking about today, and it really speaks about your integrity as a scientist, which is that you routinely get criticized and you get criticized by lay people, by the media, uh, by, you know, people that are, uh, th that want to see you fail almost, uh, but you never really shy away. You've done more podcasts than I have. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's really quite incredible that you have a, a knack for both the integrity to, to face challenges, but also the data to back it up. And what you're doing is to never shy away. So the most recent claim, which is met with, I would say, it's almost met with glee. Whenever there's a chance, it's very bizarre, Avi, that people want Oumuamua to, to go away. They want it to be some, you know, comet, some iceberg. And maybe, I mean, it has to, we have to say, maybe it could be. But there's a paper published in Nature recently. And it's not the first paper. And it's not even a theory you haven't encountered before. So I wonder if we could explore these papers and I will, I don't know, do you want me to show the nature paper first to show the nature paper itself that was written? Go ahead, go ahead okay. and show it. It appeared on Thursday. Yeah. So yes. when did you hear, when did you first hear about this paper, Albi? Well, uh, a dozen reporters from around the world asked for my opinion. The editor of nature never asked me to referee this paper. Okay, and so I got a copy of it while uh, flying back from Switzerland. I was uh, featured in the World Minds uh, um, Forum there. Uh, I had dinner with the former uh, head of NATO, uh, with the most important architect in the world, uh, uh, Lord uh, Foster, and uh, with a number of very important people. And then on the flight back, I got uh, an email from a reporter saying there is this paper that is about to appear in nature. So that's the first time I noticed it. And then, um, you know, uh, I was asked by others and we can talk about the details. 
Okay. So good. So let me call up the, uh, I, I only have access at home to, uh, to so many yeah. things in that nature. By the way, just, just a footnote on what you said in terms of criticism. Uh, when I came back from Switzerland, I also found in the mail uh, the following document that was sent to me, a package from wow. Rome in Italy. And uh, it's actually a collection of all the legal documents against Galileo Galilei that was put together by the Inquisition. Uh, and it's a... This, this collection is actually dated 1907, and someone in Rome decided to send it to me. So what I'm saying is this social phenomena of wishful thinking, wanting reality to be one thing while the evidence goes another way, is not new. What is new is that it keeps persisting uh, without us learning lessons from the past. The point is, we should adhere to evidence we should use the laws of physics as we know them in order to figure out what's going out there rather than use wishful thinking. And let me just uh, close with two brief examples. I was once uh, at a thesis exam of a physics student at Harvard, and uh, the, oh, the whole purpose of the thesis was to test the popular cosmological model of cold dark matter based on the clustering of galaxies. That was the purpose, to build up a test and then I asked the student, what will happen if we apply your test to future data? And it disagrees with the data. And the answer was, then it means that I must have missed something in my modeling because uh, it should agree with, lambda, with uh, the standard cosmological model of cold dark matter. So this is one example. And then the second one was a talk that was given a colloquium that was given at the Black Hole Initiative when I was the director there yeah. by a very prominent scientist who said that here is the prediction of the uh, swampland landscape of string theory, okay, for, for cosmology. And I said, that's great that you're making predictions. So what ha will happen if in the future we have data from the cosmic microwave background that disagrees with your predictions? Would that rule out string theory? And the answer was, no, it will just show that my conjecture about the swampland is incorrect. String theory must be right. Wow. And I say, what have we learned over four centuries from the trial of Galileo? Back then, people were 100% sure that the sun moves around the earth, and they were willing to prosecute Galileo for that. And what we learned from that is that debate about the interpretation of reality is the right way to proceed because... Um, eventually the truth will be revealed. Now we can look at the Earth from a distance and see that it moves around the sun. So obviously nobody would subscribe to the camp of the prosecutors of Galileo, yet they were 100% sure that they're right and they put him in house arrest. Yeah, and I, you know, I often think that we get so tied up with uh, you know, kind of accepting the science. People say, oh, scientists say this. So if one scientist says one thing and another scientist says another thing, the public is kind of left in an ambiguous superposition of like scientists don't either scientists don't know what they're talking about, which is very dangerous to society, or scientists, you know, they they make their whole living off of petty squabbles, which well, well, well when when the data is incomplete, sometimes you can't decide okay which side to to agree with, but if someone says two plus two is five. Right? We all know that's wrong. 
Well, I mean, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. At your university, there is a gentleman, I think his name is Kareem Carr, and he has many, 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 many uh, references to two plus two could equal five. He's actually a math graduate student at Harvard. So we should be careful because people do accept that. And it's considered uh, almost a sign of, actually, it's claimed to be white supremacy to believe two plus two equals four. So let's not get into that. I don't want to get into culture wars, but let, let's uh, let's avoid two plus two, especially at Harvard. <laughs> and I'd love well, to talk well, to Kareem someday, well, by the way. The point you know. I want to make is that the use of logic and the laws of physics is recognized as the scientific method, okay? And, yeah. and there are, and you can show that the calculation is wrong in theoretical physics. If someone, uh, for example, uh, writes the energy equation, energy should be conserved. All atoms in the universe satisfy energy conservation. It's unlike interactions between people. P uh, human relationships do not obey any universal laws. And we know that because there are societal laws and the court system, the legal court system is full of cases where people violated societal laws. So if you decide, and psychologists know that, if you decide that humans will behave in one way, some of them will try to violate that. So we know from human relationships that laws are not universal, but for atoms, all atoms need to satisfy energy conservation. So if this paper in Nature that we will talk about does not satisfy energy conservation, I can show that it's wrong. And there is no doubt about it because any astronomer, any physicist will agree with me. Mm -hmm. So this is not a matter of debate, whether energy conservation was satisfied in the Nature paper or not, is not a question of opinion. You can look at the equation and see, just like suppose you get a salary and you're saying, can I support my family with this salary? And all you put into the calculation is uh, the rent and the heating expenses, electricity expenses and so forth, but you forget to include feeding your family. Then obviously you will not be able to sustain your lifestyle because you forgot about the term. And the same is true about energy conservation. If you're yeah. missing a term, and we will talk about which term was missed, then the reality of the situation is that your calculation was wrong. There is no doubt about it. It's not a matter of opinion. So this paper, I'm going to show it on the screen now. Um, I don't know if you have a copy of the abstract. All I can show is the abstract because... Um, Go ahead. Um, that's okay. So it's called... Um, Acceleration of one I Oumuamua from radiolytically produced hydrogen, molecular hydrogen in uh, water ice. So let's go through it. If you have it there, um, you could you could take us through all these different terms. And I think it's instructive for my audience, which is the brightest in the whole universe. As you know, uh, this audience is incredibly technically proficient. So we can we can go as deep and nerdy. Uh, we, we did an hour and a half with Martin Bauer this week on the Stern-Gerlach experiment. Um, okay. Avi, so don't be afraid to, to go deep, okay, please. No, it's, it's really straightforward here because we're talking about things that are very intuitive. Yes. So the idea of this paper is really simple. Um, we know that uh, uh, comets uh, are often covered with water ice. And so what this paper asserts is that you start with an iceberg made of water which we know is common in the outer parts of planetary systems like the solar system. And it's exposed to cosmic rays in interstellar space. As it travels to us from another planetary system, uh, cosmic rays keep hitting it. And what they do is dissociate water, which is two hydrogen atoms bound to an oxygen. 
they basically separate the, the hydrogen from the oxygen. When a cosmic ray goes through matter, it releases enough energy to break the, the molecules of water into hydrogen and oxygen. And they claim breaking a third of all uh, water molecules into hydrogen and oxygen is very reasonable. And then they go through the calculation and show that if a third of the iceberg is made of hydrogen, and then this object passes near the sun, when it's roughly at the distance of the Earth from the sun, the hydrogen would evaporate from it and give it the push that is needed to explain the observed acceleration beyond the sun's gravity. That the that's object- called outgassing. That's the outgassing. Yeah, so usually for comets, and that's the way if you open the Encyclopedia Britannica, a comet is defined as having a comma of gas and dust, and, and that is produced as a result of the warming by sunlight. Uh, if there is water ice, it goes straight from solid into gas, and together with it, some dust is released, and you end up with a coma. And that is very visible because the dust and the gas often scatter sunlight. So you see this huge tail surrounding and coma and tails surrounding the comet. That's what distinguishes a comet from an asteroid. An asteroid doesn't have that ice and you don't get evaporation. It's just a rock. And so uh, that's the definition. But here they say, well, uh, we suggest that, in fact, if you take water ice and expose it to cosmic ray, uh, you end up with a dark comet, which in a way is an oxymoron because we've never seen a dark, I mean, the way that the comet is defined is by having a coma around it. And here they say, okay, well, there is a comet. This is uh, Oumuamua, the first object that came from interstellar space. It is a comet, but what evaporates from it is hydrogen, which is transparent. And uh, to calculate how much hydrogen comes out, they calculate the surface temperature of this ice to demonstrate that you can get evaporation. and they calculate the temperature of the surface of this iceberg just the way you calculate the temperature of Mars. You know, basically, there is a balance between the heat uh, delivered to the surface from sunlight and the heat radiated away from the surface when it's at a given temperature. And when you balance the two, you end up with the temperature. And the temperature is just dependent on distance um, from the sun, and uh, th- there is a little bit of energy reflected back to space that is called albedo. And uh, other than that, energy in equals energy out in radiation, and you end up with a temperature. So you end up that the Earth has a temperature just around the, the freezing temperature of water, and uh, we have a, a little bit of a greenhouse effect on Earth, and that's why it's habitable. And the same is true about Mars. So that's the kind of temperature that you can get on a rock. But the albedo of this, uh, so I recall, you know, somewhere that uh, the moon has an albedo of like 8% or something, meaning that it reflects 8% of the photons. Is that not right? That's a reasonable uh, choice, 6% typically for asteroids. The point of the matter is they calculate a surface temperature uh, when Oumuamua was observed of about 100, 150 degrees Kelvin above absolute zero by balancing heating by sunlight with radiation away from the surface. That's it. That's the paper. And so, uh, one, one more thing to just summarize, just for my benefit, Avi. Um, the, the notion that um, what's happening is there's hydrogen, obviously, in, in, in water. 
So it's getting irradiated by, uh, is it is it getting cosmic ray? Uh, they mentioned ablation. Is that the mechanism that's converting then, changing its no. albedo? Or is that no, no. doing the outcome? So the, the cosmic rays are um, changing hydrogen to, ch changing the water to hydrogen and oxygen, basically yes. uh, dissociating the water molecules. That happens over the millions of years of interstellar travel of this object. That's mm -hmm. what makes it in their paper, makes it different from comets that, that belong to the solar system because they argue the comets in the solar system are often protected from cosmic rays by the solar wind. Uh, that by itself is not a good argument because most of the long period comets come to us from the Oort cloud, which is right. outside the protection yeah. region by the solar wind. The solar wind is be being stopped at a hundred times the Earth-Sun separation, that's the heliosphere. And yeah. beyond that, nothing protects uh, solar system ices from cosmic rays. So in fact, when we look at long period comets that we come to us, from the we should have seen it. We haven't seen it. All the comets that we had seen had a coma. That's how they define, you go to all the classic definitions. Nevertheless, they define a dark comet as one that was exposed to cosmic rays for a long time. And I would say most of the long period comets were uh, experienced the same cosmic rays as Oumuamua did. So why? And the second point is we had seen an object from interstellar space that was just like a familiar comet. It was discovered in 2019 by Borisov, Boris, Gennady yeah. Borisov. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the fact that we saw that comet Borisov uh, means that you can't argue that you take a regular comet and convert it to an invisible comet when it, it's exposed to interstellar cosmic rays, because here is Borisov. It's, right. It looks like a comet. So why is Borisov different from this one? And the last point I would make is, you know, um, in a way, uh, defining an oxymoron, a dark comet, is similar to me um, to, um, you know, the newspeak that uh, was mentioned in George Orwell's book, 1984, where it, uh, the party's slogan was, war is peace. Um, uh, ignorance is strength, you know, statements that are contradictory and saying a dark comment is a contra self-contradictory. But at any event, they make this point that the, the interstellar comets are being affected by cosmic rays and that's why. And the point is, they just forgot one thing. And as you know, their paper appeared on Thursday yeah. uh, in Nature and the same day, we submitted a paper to the Astrophysical Journal Letters explaining that the energy conservation equation was not properly treated. Basically, the idea is you have sunlight hitting the surface. There is radiation from the surface. That's one cooling term. Yeah. But another cooling term is you need to invest energy in dislodging the hydrogen atoms from the lattice. That is another energy loss that you need to include. And if you increase the temperature, this energy loss goes exponentially because the higher the temperature is, the easier it is to dislodge hydrogen atoms. So once you start raising the temperature up to 100 degrees Kelvin, you get a huge evaporation rate of the hydrogen from the water. And uh, that carries all the energy that comes in and then the temperature would go down. So in order to calculate the temperature, you need to balance the heat input from sunlight with the energy losses from radiation and evaporation of hydrogen. Really trivial. They yeah. forgot to include the cooling as a result 
of the energy needed to be invested in evaporating the hydrogen, just like I talked before about forgetting to feed your family if you're getting a salary and claiming that will be sufficient. Right, so, so I'm showing the paper that you submitted with, is it TM Hong, um, that I'm showing on the screen now, I'm sharing the, the paper uh, that you submitted. So right. um, I wanted to also ask you one other thing, which is that the, you know, some of, it's not that it's new to suggest that there's some sort of iceberg uh, type object, right? So. So no. how does this differ from, I guess there's paper from McKelly at all in 2018. Uh, and by right. the way, I mean, you didn't discover Oumuamua, right? You, yeah. you, you, and, uh, there were others that-, that uh, I'm a theoretical uh, astrophysicist right. and I'm just to explain the reality reported by observers. So there was a nature paper back in 2018 in June, uh, and that's what led me to the suggestion that Oumuamua is really weird. Um, and perhaps not natural, perhaps uh, manufactured by an, uh, an extraterrestrial technological civilization. That's that's the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Too many, right. too many anomalies. But the one that Michele, Marco Michele uh, reported in Nature was that there is this non-gravitational acceleration pushing it without a cometary tail. And the question was, what is pushing it? And I suggested that it's sunlight because um, the acceleration, the excess uh, push, declined inversely with distance squared from the sun. Uh, that was a good description of it in a smooth fashion. And I said, well, that's exactly how you expect sunlight to push a very thin object. And um, moreover, there was no jitter in the um, spin of the object and no change, no evolution in the spin, the way you see it for comets. Uh, and you need, if, if it was, a, if it were a comet, irrespective of whether the evaporating gas was visible or not, you had to evaporate about 10%, a significant fraction of the mass of the object. So it would be really difficult to hide it. And the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around that region and couldn't find any uh, carbon-based molecules. Whenever we have water evaporating from the surface of a comet, there is also dust and there is carbon-based molecules. So you can't just argue, oh, this one is very different. In fact, uh, one of the authors of this paper, Daryl Seligman, he wrote a review paper about um, Oumuamua, and he wrote an email to me last summer saying, I just finished a review paper in a very prestigious journal about the comet Oumuamua. And I replied, what do you mean by the comet Oumuamua? We both know there was no cometary tail. How can you call it a comet? And he said, well, I have this theory that it had a cometary tail when we didn't look at it. And when we looked at it, it didn't have a cometary tail. And so I said, that's what, well, I, that's what Einstein said about the moon. Well, I said, really there when you is, don't look at uh, it? I mean, this is just like going to the zoo and looking at an elephant and arguing that the elephant is actually a generic zebra that shows its stripes when we look away from it. And how can that be a mainstream view in overviewing a, a, an object that looks weird. You know, you can't just say it's a comet when it's not a comet. Sometimes I feel like the child in Hans Christian Andersen's uh, tale, um, you know, that said the, uh, the emperor has no clothes. Here the emperor is Oumuamua and I say it has no cometary tail. And everyone else, like the adults uh, looking at the parade say, oh yeah, it's a comet with invisible clothes. With in <laughs> you know, it's a dark comet. To me, it's an oxymoron. I'm just one, one of my one of my um, listeners is, is asking an interesting question, Avi. Uh, could you both be right? He's asking, 
could the object be an iceberg sort of towed by an extraterrestrial? In other words, could an extraterrestrial object be associated, affiliated with this, maybe for its source of water or something? What, what do you think about that idea? Well, it's possible. It's possible. I don't know. Um, so this object was the size of a football field. And the argument, if, if indeed it was pushed by reflecting sunlight, uh, it had to be very thin, uh, sort of like a sail or a very thin object. And um, actually, we uh, the same telescope in Hawaii observed another object that exhibited similar qualities uh, in September 2020. It was given the name 2020 SO, and it was realized a few weeks later that this was a rocket booster that NASA launched in 1966. And it had thin walls made of stainless steel. And that's why there was no cometary tail. And because the walls were thin, it was pushed by reflecting sunlight. So you can imagine, of course, um, uh, 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 something like a light sail that has a payload attached to it, perhaps. But my point is, there is no evidence for the payload. Okay, what right. we see is we we can't we don't have an image of the object. Uh, it would have been nice to have one, but given the data that we have, one simple explanation is that it's being pushed by sunlight. And you may ask where would such an object come from? And it could be just space trash. Uh, I wrote a paper that was published uh, two weeks ago, actually, uh, talking about um, Dyson spheres. So mm -hmm. Freeman Dyson, um, 60 years ago, suggested the idea that a very advanced technological civilization might build a megastructure around its host star. Yeah, he was my first guest on the podcast, uh, Avi. Oh, really? Really? Um, anyway, I, I always admired him. I, I yeah. met him personally for many years at uh, Princeton, the Institute for Advanced Study, where I was a postdoc. That's, That's where right. I learned astrophysics. Anyway, so his suggestion was that an advanced civilization will try to harvest much more energy from its host star than we do. You know, even with our plans for clean energy, at best we can harvest the energy intercepting with the Earth. But he was thinking, you know, surrounding the star with some kind of a sphere. And it could be made made of tiles that are basically light sails. Yeah. That's what Robert Forward uh, suggested as a variant on Dyson's idea. Basically having tiles such that the radiation pressure outwards is balanced by gravity inwards. So you have those hovering above the stars. Um, and so at any event, if the civilization is using a Dyson sphere for a while, uh, eventually it might migrate away, especially when the star evolves. And if it leaves the, the structure behind, the structure could be torn apart by impacts uh, of asteroids, or actually if it's made of tiles of solar sails, you know, when the star evolves and the sun will brighten up, it will push away because for the same mass, it will have much higher luminosity. So it will push away all these tiles and they can become interstellar objects. And one of them may have been Oumuamua. So it could be pieces of a broken Dyson sphere. So that's an example for space trash that could lead to very thin objects that you know pollute space and every now and would then they accelerate would that type of space trash accelerate uh, you know unusually well it will it will because it's thin all you need for it to exhibit excess push away from the sun is for it to be thin so that its area per unit mass will be high and that's what the 2020 so which was the rocket booster from nasa yeah and that's what it was and it showed that phenomena so that's what i was suggesting that uh, Oumuamua was thin and therefore pushed away. We don't know what the origin of it and what was it designed for. Um, I should Another footnote, I should mention that there was a paper that I've written with uh, 
the director of AARO at the Pentagon. There is an organization collecting all the data about unidentified aerial phenomena. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a draft uh, together with him. His name is uh, Sean Kirkpatrick, which got a lot of attention just because the Pentagon is collaborating with a scientist from a, an Ivy League university. Um, at any event, in that paper, which was not yet uh, submitted because it's under review, um, uh, in that paper, we um, mentioned in the introduction the possibility that uh, you can have a mothership that releases a lot of small probes. And the reason I came across this idea is because Oumuamua shared the same distance of closest approach and the same speed as an interstellar meteor that was discovered seven months before it uh, in March 2017. And uh, it was detected by U the US government uh, and put in the meteor catalog. And together with my student, Amir Siraj, we identified it as moving too fast to be bound to the sun. So we identified it as an interstellar meteor of very high material strength because it burned up in the lower atmosphere of the Earth. This was the second interstellar meteor. We discovered another one from 2014. But what was special about the 2017 one uh, is that uh, it shared the same distance at closest approach to the sun and the same speed at that distance as Oumuamua did. And so I thought to myself, oh, let's check the orbit because maybe it was released. Maybe it's a fragment, either naturally broken off, a piece broken off of Muamua, or it was purposely released as uh, like dan dandelion seeds. You know, like if you mm -hmm. have uh, a, a large mothership releasing probes into the habitable zone. But it turns out that uh, when you map the orbit, they couldn't have come from the same place. And um, But that led me to suggest a possible scenario. Of course, the purpose of any extraterrestrial technological gadget depends on what the senders wanted to use it for, or it could be just space trash. You know, we uh, when you go to the ocean, you find a lot of uh, plastic trash, and uh, it indicates that there are, there is a technological civilization out there. In fact, the mass of this trash will exceed the mass of fish in the oceans by 2050 if we don't stop throwing trash into the ocean but that a uh, human human generated trash not extraterrestrial trash no this one is human but the, if, if you're asking if there is an extraterrestrial uh, <laughs> equipment in the ocean that's what we're going to find out and we can talk right. about it or that's the first interstellar meteor we're trying we will try uh, to go there to the explosion site of that meteor and find the uh, relics from it uh, in order to analyze their composition and figure out whether it was a spacecraft actually because it Be has material strength tougher than iron. We can talk about it more. Yeah, we'll talk about it. I'm showing that paper on the screen, your paper from uh, August 2022 with uh, Amir and Tim. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when you talk about the confidence interval, and apologies, we're talking with Avi Loeb, uh, professor of astronomy at Harvard University, um, Brian Keating, not feeling 100% great today, but I could not miss my opportunity to share with you, my beloved audience, this conversation with a renowned friend and 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 uh, thinker, uh, you talk about the probability of it not being uh, extraterrestrial, extrasolar, and you say it's ninety nine point nine nine nine, you know, uh, five nines percent. Um, is there really no, you know, one in a million uh, probability? Like these objects, could they not be scattered from the Oort cloud and some violent collisions from some interactions from local local stellar systems and so forth? 
is it really true that we have, I mean, I have these meteorites here, which I give away to my audience uh, when they sign up for my mailing list at briankeating.com slash list. I'll put that up on the screen. Uh, so if you have a, uh, if you have a .edu address, you win one of these chunks of – this looks like Oumuamua, doesn't it, Avi, this, this little guy? <laughs> um, so, well, it's okay. a miniaturized version because Oumuamua was the size of a football field. <laughs> That's right. I couldn't fit that here. We, you know, Our budget at UCSD is not as large as, as Harvard. But uh, is it really so hard to get an object from another solar system yeah. into our solar system? Can you explain that? Well, let's talk about the first interstellar meteor, which was the first object from outside the solar system ever discovered by humans. And it was detected by the U.S. government, uh, as you mentioned, in 2014, January 8th. Uh, and uh, they just cataloged it. NASA put it in a catalog of meteors. So the U.S. government monitors the atmosphere, uh, you know, for ballistic missiles. Uh, it's a national security matter. And every now and then they see an object coming from out there and colliding with Earth. Uh, it's a meteor. It's a rock, usually from the solar system. Uh, in fact, every year there is a rock the size of a person uh, colliding with Earth every year that releases as much energy as the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Wow. So we get an atomic explosion every year. We don't hear about it, but because it happens 30 kilometers above the ocean surface, most likely above the ocean because it, the oceans cover most of the Earth, uh, 70%. But um, it doesn't cause much damage at such a, an elevation. Um, and uh, we just don't hear about it, but the U.S. government knows about it. And uh, they basically catalog meteors that they see from the fireball that is created as a result of the friction of this object with the air. Uh, so they do catalog them, and we found this meteor from 2014 that moved too fast to be bound to the sun. And in fact, we calculated how, much, how fast it was moving outside the solar system. Before it entered the solar system, it was moving at 60, more than 60 kilometers per second, which is faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. Wow. So it was moving so fast outside the solar system that you couldn't get it to move that fast as a result of an interaction with an Oort cloud object, or it wasn't even moving close to any of the planets uh, in the solar system. And a passage of another star at a large separation would not give it much of a kick. In order to get a kick of, you know, order 60 kilometers per second, it really needs to interact with a star very even closer than the separation of the Earth from the Sun, maybe by a factor of four or so. So it wow. really needs to pass extremely close to a star, which is a very unlikely event. Uh, and uh, so it was moving too fast, uh, to be bound to the sun and even too fast to be associated with any of the nearby stars, 95% of all stars. And uh, the question is, what was it? And, and of course, when we submitted our paper for publication in 2019 saying this is the first interstellar object, uh, it predated the Oumuamua by almost four years, uh, the referees in the Astrophysical Journal rejected the paper. Huh. They said, we don't believe the US government. And I thought to myself, how can that be the case if, if they are trying to figure out whether a ballistic missile will hit Boston or New York City? They must have very good sensors. They can't get it wrong. And um, um, I basically reached out to um, people in, in, over the national security fence. And eventually it was uh, a person in the White House that uh, mediated the release of information. And there was a letter sent to NASA 
by the US Space Command under the Department of Defense, stating at the 99.999% that the error bars were small enough that this object definitely at the 99.999% uh, came from outside the solar system. That's it, that yeah. it must have been, the error budget was extremely small. And then our paper was accepted for publication. Yeah. And the US, the US government also released the light curve of the fireball and moreover, uh, additional data on this meteor. And that allowed us to calculate that it actually exploded 10 kilometers above the ocean surface. And uh, that's very low in the atmosphere compared yeah, to the 30 much. kilometers I was mentioning before. So that meant that it, there was an extremely uh, high stress exerted on the surface of the object because it moved very fast. And it was also, uh, it experienced a density of air that is quite high at, at the bottom of the atmosphere. And we calculated that the material strength of this object must have been 10 times higher than any other object in the catalog of 273 of them that the government compiled. So why would the first interstellar meteor be the toughest of all the space rocks ever detected by this by these sensors. And uh, the, there are two possibilities. Either it originated from a system very different than the solar system. So even in the solar system, the toughest meteors are made of iron. They are called iron meteorites. Yep, that's what you'll get uh, if you sign from a minimalist, yeah. Yeah, they are the toughest. And this one was 10 times tougher in material strength. The question is, what was it made of? And of course, it could have arrived from some natural source, like for example, an exploding star, or two neutron stars colliding, something that we've never imagined producing interstellar objects, or it may be an artificial alloy made of stainless steel, once again, you know, like a spacecraft. And the only way to figure out is not to argue about it on Twitter, the way some people do. I don't have any account on social media, as I said, yeah. and I don't want to argue. I just follow the scientific method. You know, I just want to go there and collect fragments and then examine their composition. It's straightforward. That's what a kid would do. If right. you have a question, you go and check, check it, test it. And so I said, we want to go there after the paper was accepted for publication. And then soon afterwards, uh, a pay person from the general public came forward and said, on a Zoom meeting, he said, on a Zoom call, uh, he said, you have it, one and a half million dollars necessary to, to fund the expedition. Here it is, go ahead. Wow. Okay, so I didn't do any fundraising, and uh, this person will come with us actually on the expedition. Um, his name is Charles Hoskinson, uh, and he was very generous. And that's the way I raised funding also for the Galileo project, separate from the expedition. I got um, a few million dollars this way. And you know, um, it's nice. I mean, you you you're too uh, you're too sneered, you're too uh, modest, Avi. But I'll have to toot your horn a little bit here. So you know, one thing that strikes me about the research that you do and the and the approach to the scientific method that you endeavor to to uphold and why I like talking to you so much is that you're doing stuff that a is incredibly intellectually stimulating you're trying to do it b with integrity you're also trying to do it for the benefit of the public and i think a lot of what we do is kind of cloistered away uh and part of the reason i love doing this youtube channel aside from the fact i get to talk to the most brilliant people on earth um, including, you know, this week alone, I'm going to have a conversation with the new superconductor. You think it's it's controversial, Avi, talking about Oumuamua 
imagine you announce a room temperature superconductor. Uh, so I'm talking to uh, some of the critics of that paper um, uh, as well. So anyway, but the last thing is that you do it for the benefit of the public, meaning that these endeavors are meant to um, to maybe reduce the cost to the public of things like um, a, a huge NASA study, uh, which is being led by our mutual friend David Spurgle, uh, to study the properties of extraterrestrial data, perhaps, or unidentified aerial phenomena, more precisely. Right. But this mission, you point out in this paper from last year, is about, you know, 1% or maybe less of the Bennu mission, right? So yeah. going to Earth, it's, it's, it's like Elon Musk, you know, who uh, is, is, is so ingenious. But, you know, he wants to go to Mars and live out his days on Mars. And, you know, our mutual friend Martin Rees says, you know, I hope you don't die on impact on Mars uh, to Elon. But isn't it much more likely to find a habitable zone on Earth than to, to go to Mars, as cool as that would be? And I'm sure I, I would love to take the, the 20,000th ride to Mars, but um, but you're doing this for the benefit of the public. This is not yeah, a public taxpayers, right? This is not some right. international team. This is you guys and some Speedos going down to New Guinea. So yeah, I, I want to commend yeah. you for that. Thank you. I mean, um, I don't uh, see myself, um, even though I'm a member of the Ivy League, I don't see myself very different than any common person, any person on the street, uh, because I grew up on a farm. You know, I used to collect eggs every afternoon. I was connected to nature. I'm not trying to impress people. Uh, I, if I see the public interested in this subject and the government is interested in this subject, then how can the scientific community shy away from it? How can it be... Uh, arguing that you know it's too risky, it will be a waste of taxpayers' money when the taxpayers want it. Right. Uh, and so at the same time, you know we are spending billions of dollars in the search for dark matter. The Large Hadron Collider didn't find supersymmetry, and uh, you know that's not considered an extraordinary claim. But that something like us exists or existed around a planet like the Earth moving around the star like the sun is considered an extraordinary claim. And I say that is arrogant. It's as arrogant as saying, I don't care about the public opinion. There are more than 60% of American citizens that believe yeah. in extraterrestrial life. And, and I would the, say, yeah, go I, this is more than the number of uh, people believing in God. And I would also argue that, you know, most of the stars from billions of years before the sun. So we should just look out and check if, there are any packages in our mailbox. And in the past, you know, I get hostility also from the SETI community, which is very surprising to me because what I'm doing is looking for techno signatures, which is what they're doing, but in a different way. So they're right. looking for radio signals for 70 years, haven't found anything. It's just like waiting for a phone call at home. And there may not be anyone calling you at the time that you're waiting for it. I say, let's look at our mailbox at our backyard <laughs> and see if there are any packages that arrive because even if the senders are not alive anymore, even if their star burnt up their planet, you know, uh, it's possible the packages arrive to us and we can learn about them. Yeah, and, and I, I, I also I, the yeah. yeah. So as you um, said, last time you were on with Gary Nolan, uh, well, you know, I have a link to that on the on the show. You've, you've discussed this many times, but you had a great line. You said the sky is not classified. You it's know? not and, classified. And, and the ocean's not classified. Well, parts of the ocean are classified, but the ocean's not no, classified. Uh, I, should, I should also say that, you know, when you go to your backyard, what my colleagues are doing with respect to Oumuamua is saying, oh, we've been to our backyard. We know that it's full of rocks. 
And I say, well, if an object arrived to our backyard, we all agree that it arrived from outside of our backyard. That's what an interstellar object is. You know, maybe it's a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor. Why would you assume that all the objects that come from the street are rocks of the type that you find in your backyard? And, you know, we know already that most of the, uh, the matter in the universe is not what we find in, 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 in our solar system. Most of the matter is dark. We don't know what it's made of. We call it dark matter. We learned already that the solar system is not representative of the universe. So why would we argue that any interstellar object must be a rock, even if it looks different than all the rocks we had seen in the solar system? That's just common sense. And what I find is that common sense is not common. <laughs> so on the one hand, I see people from academia attacking a very simple you know, approach that uses the scientific method, basically trying to collect evidence, they have a problem with that. They say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And how would you get evidence if you're not searching? That's my point. I say extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. And what happens is that they don't fund any research in that direction, and therefore they say there is no evidence. It's as if you would say, uh, the claim that the dark matter is the lightest supersymmetric particle is extraordinary. And we don't have evidence for that. So we should not explore it. That's not what the mainstream of physics did. It said, this is a statement worth putting billions of dollars to, to testing. Right. And, then they didn't, and then they didn't find it. And nobody says that was a waste of money. Why? Because that's the way science is done. At the yeah. frontiers, you're exploring the unknown. And you can't just say that the lightest supersymmetric particle is an extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary evidence because to find the evidence, you need to put in billions of dollars. So that's what's happening in, in the context of tech, technological objects from extraterrestrial yeah. civilizations. But so nobody is willing to put the money, except when I come forward with a research plan, then wealthy individuals come forward and say, here is the money because they see you know, that this is the, the way, the path for us to uh, expand our scientific knowledge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's just straightforward. I don't see why people... No, why no, it's, it's true. And, 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 and one thing I love is that you're, you're not even shy to, 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 you know, kind of stimulate discussion. I don't think you pick fights. I think you, you stimulate no. discussion, even with colleagues down the hall at Harvard. And I've, I've, you and I talked about this. I think the first or second time you're on the podcast, and you've been gracious enough to come on multiple times, but your friend Kamran Vafa, and, and he and I had conversations, and we can bring up stuff, and that's the way science should be done. Science isn't done by debates and by press releases. Um, I can't help, because I do want to take a couple questions before my voice gives out for my audience, uh, but before I do that, I'm going to ask you a question. You have your choice. Hashem, God, he tells you, Avi, pick one, Oumuamua or this meteorite. Which one would you rather have the actual proof or evidence that uh, alien civilizations, technological civilizations exist? Well, obviously the meteorite because I can go there and study it. You see, Oumuamua is not around anymore. If I had a, a close-up photograph of Oumuamua... That's what I mean, yeah. So a close-up photograph or I, you know, that proves it's yeah. actual like a, a spaceship or that the meteorite is a space junk from oh, another... No, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a practical person. I don't really <laughs> imagine... Uh, well. If we had a, an opportunity to go to Oumuamua, obviously I'll do that. But uh, right now, the best way to proceed is to check what this meteor was like. Uh, of course, we can find more objects like Oumuamua. We, we have a dating app 
which is called the Vera Rubin Observatory that will have a, a survey of the sky with 3.2 billion pixel camera uh, in a year or so. And it will survey the, um, the, the southern sky every four days. And uh, presumably, we'll find more objects like Oumuamua so we can get close to them, take a, a, observe them with the Webb telescope, at, uh, which is about a million miles away from Earth. So we will see the object from two directions, from telescopes on Earth and from the Webb telescope. And that would allow us to pin down the trajectory in three dimensions very precisely and figure out whether there is some propulsion or whether it's just the trajectory is shaped just by the sun's gravity. Uh -huh. That would be a great benefit. Great. So that there are lots of things to uh, do in the future. And, you know, I was asked by a, a podcaster just a few days ago, uh, in a podcast called Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D. We uh, can't advertise competitors' podcasts here, Avi. Do not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, uh, I'm just uh, advertising one question. The question was, uh, we hear from many of your colleagues that they are 100% sure that Oumuamua was not an extraterrestrial technological relic. And I said, well, that's uh, a reflection on them, not on Oumuamua, because there were people during the days of Galileo also 100% sure that the sun moves around the Earth. The point is, when you have incomplete data, you cannot be sure. Uh, only believers are 100% sure. Right. Scientists with partial data are never sure. So if you want to follow the scientific method, all you say is, I want better data in order yeah. to figure it out. Out of curiosity, being like a child, you know, we uh, if we don't ask those questions, we basically broadcast worldwide that we lost our childhood curiosity. Yeah. And, the, the but the problem really sometimes they're too childish. Too, sometimes they're too childlike. They they want to take their toys and go home, and and they want to be jealous and petty. But uh, so Avi, we have a few minutes left. I've got a ton of questions. Seven hundred questions go here. Go ahead. I only ask you. We'll do a rapid fire. Uh, Rock SD is asking: um, Is it significant that of all the planets in our solar system, that both Oumuamua and this meteorite came to the Earth instead of, say, Jupiter? Oh no. The okay. It depends on the trajectory. So. Um, if you assume that uh, it, it came on a random trajectory, uh, there should be an object like it every year coming into the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. So it's really common. However, you can reduce the number of objects by a factor of uh, 10 to the 10 billion or so if you imagine uh, that they were targeting the habitable zone. So if they were sent into the habitable region where the Earth moves around the Sun, uh, then there are many fewer by 10 billion. Uh, and we don't know. Uh, so we just need better statistics. And hopefully the Vera Rubin Observatory will give us more examples. Mm -hmm. So um, someone's asking about J JWST. Is, is anything JWST can do with regard to searching for these uh, objects or uh, similar? Not to search, because the Webb Telescope has a very small field of view of all the five arc minutes, yeah. uh, about a tenth of a... Uh, of a degree and so it's a very a small view and these objects you need to to look at the entire sky in order to fi find one of them and so in combination with the Vera Rubin observatory that will survey the sky uh, that could alert the Webb telescope to an existing object and then it's just like having two eyes you can gauge distance much better the reason yes. we have two eyes is so that we can have three-dimensional uh, calibration of the threat that is in front of us that allows us to survive. So um, in, in the same way, web telescope and Earth-based telescope could figure 
the distance and very precisely to an an object like Oumuamua. Oh, great. Okay, next question. Tolip asks, uh, can, this change in speed of Oumuamua was small compared to a typical comet moving in an elliptical orbit. I guess my question is, um, do we see comets that just move? I mean, that we know that are comets that have a cometary tail. Do they ever exhibit strange accelerations comparable to yeah, the elliptical orbits? This is coming from the rocket effect that uh, when it's the same effect that is pushing rockets or jet planes. Basically, uh, airplanes, and I once did a calculation on a fly, uh, they throw back material so that it pushes the jet plane forward. That's basically what happens. And the same is true about rockets. And you need to carry the fuel with you. And a comet is exactly the same thing. It has water ice on the surface. It evaporates as a result of the uh, warming by sunlight. And then it pushes the comet in away from the sun. And Yes, we do see that for small enough. So the uh, force is proportional to the surface area of the comet. And then the acceleration is the force divided by the mass. So the mass goes like the volume of the comet. And therefore, the area to volume uh, ratio dictates how much it's accelerated. So uh, in other words, the acceleration is bigger for smaller objects. It's inversely proportional to the size of the comet. So for small comets, you can get much more acceleration and, and it's noticeable. For very big cores, you don't get that. And um, so that is observed for comets and that's the way they, they behave. Um, and um, Oumuamua exhibited the same kind of an acceleration, except there was no cometary tail. Mm -hmm. We look at things, um, someone's asking, Brian Kelly is a friend of the show, is asking about uh, the Pioneer space anomaly, things like that. Are those, you know, I, I guess my question would be, we know cosmic rays exist and we know that, you know, these light sails can exist. Uh, do we have any evidence that light sails could be damaged or, you know, affected by, in other words, could there be sort of a hybrid solution to light sail? Um, cosmic rays, could could these interact in some way that could degrade the performance or change trajectory and, and do certain, such things? Yeah, we, we actually, in the original paper, suggesting that the, it's a very thin object, Oumuamua, we actually made an estimate. Uh, what is the impact of either cosmic rays or interstellar particles, uh, dust particles, uh, uh, gas particles on it? And we concluded that it's uh, quite minimal. I mean, uh, it will not destroy the object simply because the interstellar medium is so dilute. Uh, I mean, obviously you can have holes in the sail as a result of dust particles passing through, but it will not destroy the entire sail simply because it, uh, the medium is uh, very rarefied out there. That's right. So Avi, I wanna just conclude um, by, well, uh, asking you, if you had to, do what we call a steel man. If you had to give your best reproduction of the criticism against you, what do you think is the best critique of the Oumuamua's extraterrestrial um, uh, technology? What do you think is the best in your estimation of all the critiques? Yeah, so I would argue that, uh, well, first of all, this paper in Nature that appeared a few days ago in the abstract, says explicitly that past explanations of the uh, non-gravitational acceleration in the form of a hydrogen iceberg, nitrogen iceberg, dust bunny are not valid. The paper admits that. And now we showed also that the, what the paper suggests, the hydrogen water iceberg is also not valid because of energy conservation. So all of these uh, have issues. 
uh, all of the explanations. Uh, and if you wanted to explain uh, what was observed, I would argue maybe the data was wrong. The observation uh, reported results that are not valid in the sense that when people analyze the trajectory, they forgot to compensate for some error in the measurement. So if I had to guess, my guess would be that the original Nature paper, uh, if you don't want to admit that Oumuamua was a very thin object, that the original Nature paper from 2018 by Michelli uh, was wrong. Simply they, uh, the data that they analyzed was miscalculated. There was something off and they inferred a non-gravitational acceleration, but it wasn't in reality, it wasn't there. That would be the simplest way to resolve it uh, without any cometary tail. Hmm. Very good. Well, Avi, I want to thank you so much. Apologize for my, uh, my voice, but uh, as I said, I couldn't miss it for the world to have a chance or out of this world to have a chance to chat with you. You're always such a gracious guest and uh, one of the favorites of my audience, which is growing. Uh, thanks to having guests like you on the podcast, uh, the Into the Impossible podcast, going over 100,000 viewers. I can't believe it, or 100,000 subscribers just on YouTube. And then we've got another 50 or 60,000 elsewhere. But Avi, I want to thank you so much. Reminder, check out Galileo Project on Twitter. Check them out on uh, their website. You can uh, support their research, which is incredibly important. You can uh, respond to comments and stuff and, and articles. I put them up. They're all in the show notes for the from YouTube. And uh, subscribe to my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list. And you too may win a miniature chunk of a muamua, which sticks to my uh, cell phone magnet. There it is. Here it is, cruising through the solar system. Thank Avi. you, Brian. If we find something in the Pacific Ocean, I'll be glad to see you again and even give you a souvenir from there. That'd be great. I'm going to send you a uh, Into the Impossible Speedo that you can wear while you're swimming uh, through the ocean there, Avi. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to The Impossible. Keep in touch by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you the next best thing to an alien artifact, a piece of an extraterrestrial object in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Please help make the show better by filling out our listener survey link to the show notes. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us break the 100,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. Please keep it growing and subscribe. And remember, always be curious.